Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to Ashura Reflections. Uh, today's episode is on Ashura and Quran. We are very concerned today with how we can understand this link between Abu Abdullah and the Quran and how in his journey and in his, his uh, ultimate union with Allah Azza wa Jal, Quran is always central, whether he's speaking Quran or he's practicing Quran or he's arguing against those who are using Quran against them. It's as if these two are intertwined like in Thaqalain all those years ago. So our discussion today is all about how we understand Quran through Abu Abdullah and understand Abu Abdullah through the way he uses Quran, the way he thinks, his mentality. And for such a beautiful discussion, we are joined with three amazing guests. We have Sheikh Muhammad Al-Hilli, um, a scholar, uh, international renowned scholar who is based in London. And alongside him, we have uh, Sheikh Ali Azul Qimani, who also speaks in the Light of Knowledge um, YouTube channel and is very much concerned with matters relating to Quran and our primary text. And punctuated through our discussion are beautiful recitations by brother Muhammad Ali Saadi of Sydney, Australia. And he is here to give us his beautiful voice for the verses of Quran which come up. And so please join us in discussing and understanding what is this link between Ashura and the Quran? It seems that we have a, a fundamental problem with how Quran was used against Ahl al-Bayt at the time. For example, in just 10 years after Hijrah, when uh, the event of Ghadir happens and the verse, when that verse is revealed, barely 50 years later, the same people who were alive in that time are using the same Quran to oppress Ahl al-Bayt. The same verses which were used in, which were revealed in honor and praise of Ahl al-Bayt. So it seems there's a real problem in the way that the people used and understood Quran, which in the same generation was revealed for Ahl al-Bayt in some cases, and people are using those same verses against them. Sheikh Hilli, at the time, what went wrong? How did we get to this point where Ali Muhammad were being oppressed by people who knew the Quran? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, peace and blessings, salam alaikum upon all the respected uh, viewers, sisters and brothers. Remember the 10th of Muharram and the tragedy of Karbala was not the first incident in Islamic history whereby Muslims confronted each other and concepts within the religion of Islam was used to justify oppression, wrongdoing. If you look at, for example, the incident of Safin, the Battle of Safin, you recognize that historians have recorded how the army of Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan raised the copies of the Holy Quran on the spear, on spears, to try and say that, you know what, we are also people of the Quran. And famously, the commander of the faithful, Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali ibn Abi Talib salam, would say, natiq, I am the spoken Quran. This is a form of deception. Wake up, people, in other words. The idea that, of course, emerges is the Qur'an is an authority. And for a Muslim, it's the book of Allah, the immaculate, error-free, beautiful set of instructions from the Almighty subhanahu wa ta'ala. So anyone out there seeking to derail, seeking to somehow uh, misguide people, cannot come as a Muslim and say, I'm going to be against Qur'an. They have to use the Qur'an to justify their uh, actions. And in fact, the behavior of the people on the 10th of Muharram and before was characteristic of the individuals that the Quran describes about in Surah Al-Jumu'ah. Allah says, there are some people who associate themselves with the Holy Scriptures, just like how a mule or a donkey carries books carries sacred books or anything of value, has no idea, but they're carriers. They're just simply associated with it superficially. And when it's required for them to justify their actions through it, they'll take things out of context. And I think even today, unfortunately, this behavior has continued. You have terrorists, you have extremists, you have people who have hijacked the teachings of the religion of Islam. They have come forward and they have justified the killings of innocent civilians by looking at the certain verses of the Quran, like chapter 9, verse number 5, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Whatever you find them, just kill them. And I said, you know, this refers to our ability to kill non-believers. And this is, of course, far from the truth. This is a crime against the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it's the word of Allah and it's so immaculate, it allows human beings to somehow interpret it in its own way. And that's how 
the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, his holy progeny, has warned against those who use interpretations of the Quran that suits their own way of thinking. So they don't come to the Quran to understand it. They come to the Quran and use it according to their understanding to justify their actions. This is tafsir bil-ra'i, it's called. Interpretations by one's own uh, thoughts. And this is the methodology of Bani Umayyah and later Bani Abbas. To justify their illegitimate presence and to uh, increase their grip on power, they would come forward and they would come up with theological concepts like, for example, predetermination, you know, this jabr. Muawiyah would say, you know, look at verses of the Quran. Allah is in charge of everything. He makes everything happen. And therefore, I am just doing according to what God wants. This is, I'm forced to do it. So can you see how there was a systemic uh, uh, um, plan to take verses out of context to justify actions based on wrong interpretations? And also, we see that same argument being used for, to justify Yazid later on, that this was the qada of Allah, and Yazid was simply implementing what was God's will. So that argument was allowed to, to stay and to fetter within the qawm. Uh, on this point, um, when you look at that time period of Ashura, can you see in your understanding of Quran the precise ways it was misused to get to this point? As one of the biggest things we would always mention, um, is that one of the hadiths which are mutawah? Ah, you have cut out, unfortunately. I know the point he was going to make, so I really want him to say it. But, uh, yeah, Ara, while you are cut out, Ara, could you begin the point again, please? Just because you cut out at the beginning. Sorry. So, um, so. As we all know, in the, in the Shia school of thought, one, oh, in fact, sorry, in the Muslim uh, hadith corpus, we know that one of the hadiths which are mutawatir is the hadith of Thaqalain, or the hadith of Thaqalain, where Rasulullah says, I leave behind two weighty things, the Quran and the Ahlul Bayt. You will not go astray as long as you hold on to them both. And we understand in the Shia school of thought, we understand from this hadith that the Ahlul Bayt are the foremost interpreters of the Quran, such that if we want to understand the Quran, we have to go back to the Ahlul Bayt, because as uh, Sheikh mentioned, Imam Ali would say, Ana Quran I am the spoken Quran. Now, when you don't go back to the original interpreters of the Quran, when you go against those original interpreters, then you interpret it according to your own desires and understanding. This is why also we talk about um, the succession to the Holy Prophet, and we say that it must be divine, because anyone else would, would rule according to partially their own desires. It is only Allah's divinely appointed uh, leader who can who can lead according to the divine precepts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's interesting that in dua, in the ziyarat of the day of Arafah for Imam al-Hussein, you know, in every big night of the calendar, there is a ziyarat for Imam al-Hussein. In the Quran, there is a verse where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi says, وَقَالَ الرَّسُولُ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ قَوْمِ اتَّخَذُوا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ مَهْجُورًا On the day of judgment, Allah says, the Holy Prophet will say, Oh Allah, this community took this Quran to be a forsaken thing. In the ziyarat of the day of Arafah for Imam al-Hussein, we say, وَأَصْبَحَ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ بِفَقْدِكَ مَحْجُورًا Oh, Imam al-Hussein, the book of Allah became forsaken with your loss. Because without the Ahlul Bayt, you cannot truly understand the Qur'an in its complete way. You cannot understand the Qur'an correctly. And so without an interpreter, the interpretation became open. This is, you know, in that period of Islamic history, you also find, for example, many theological differences appearing. The Mu'tazalis, the Ash'arites, and these different schools of thought appearing. Why? Because they don't have a single prime interpreter. Then the interpretation becomes open to scholars or whoever feels like they have knowledge. And this is why you find people went away from Ahlul Bayt and you find that just years after verses were revealed in praise of Ahlul Bayt that Ahlul Bayt was being oppressed. Hmm. Sheikh, thoughts on this? Because Imam Hussein was recognized as an authority of Quran at the time. And yet, not when it came to matters of politics or matters of leadership. So, there's something wrong in even how people viewed Abba Abdullah and Quran at the time. Absolutely. I think one of the greatest injustices and zulm in history of mankind, and specifically in the religion of Islam, is the oppression on Hadith of Thaqalain. Because I don't believe today over one billion human beings have understood this Hadith at all. The reason why it's been misunderstood is word for word, it has a constitution for mankind and for Muslims in particular. 
You see, the level degree of its authenticity is equal to the Quran. This is being researched through a number of different institutions, and they found that its degree of tawatur, meaning acceptance amongst Muslims, is such that as much as we believe the Quran is unchanged, as much as we believe that the Quran is absolutely unfabricated, Hadith al-Thaqilin, word by word, is the true words of the Holy Messenger, peace and blessings be upon him and his holy progeny. When the Prophet of Islam emphasized that you must not, you know, dissociate yourself from these two, otherwise you'll go astray. It's a clear suggestion to people that the moment they do so, they will go astray. It's a not very con accepted concept in logic. If you've got a condition, if you've got a certain statement, the moment you step out of this, you will be in straight. If the Prophet says, they will never separate. So I can't claim to follow the Quran, but reject Ahl al-Bayt. And I can't claim to follow Ahl al-Bayt, but reject the Quran, or not necessarily associate myself with the Quran. The Prophet says they can't be separated. So one of the key things that Abu Abdullah Hussein, peace and blessings be upon him, did on the 10th of Muharram and all the journey as we will discuss, is he wanted to keep that correlation, that connection alive in the mindset of people. On the 10th, he would say, oh people, is there any other grandson of the Prophet other than me? Look, far and wide, just investigate. He would wear the turban of Rasulullah. He would have the sword of Rasulullah, the abba, the cloak of Rasulullah. And he would say, have I oppressed you? Have I wronged you? If you want to argue that, oh, by the way, you're Ahl al-Bayt, but you've gone astray. So tell me, where have I gone astray? What wrong have I committed? If you agree that I haven't done anything wrong, then you must also agree that I am the Ahl al-Bayt. Who else is the Ahl al-Bayt? Because there's no other grandson of the Prophet. So how on earth are you now fighting me when I am with the Quran? That means you're fighting the Quran. Simple deduction. That's what the mission of Imam al-Hussein was clearly to uh, illustrate. And I believe the battle of Karbala is a battle for Hadith al-Thaqalain. Absolutely. Because here we have 30,000 who are praying, performing salah. 30,000 who had an imam. Yes. Immat al-Kufr, the Quran tells, refers to it. You can't have an imam, but imam of misguidance. Right. There were people who, yes, they were Qur'an, or Quran. Some of them recited the Quran. Some of them, like the Khawarij, you know, had held the Quran so much in esteem. And Khawarij is a classic example of a group of people who use the Quran for their own misguidance. No doubt, you know, no, I don't think you'll find a better example in history of people who unfortunately did not understand the spirit of the Quran and have not carried the Quran in the way it should be. But, you know, as the narration says, the Quran either guides you or either be your damnation. You know, ultimately that is what uh, 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 the Khawarij went through. So when we come to this, we realize there was leadership. The, the whole battle of Karbala is about leadership. We have Hussein ibn Ali, grandson of the Holy Prophet, uh, uh, the Ahl al-Bayt, and we have Yazid ibn Muawiyah, Umar ibn Sa'ad, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. Who are these people? Who are they? And ultimately, if you, read, if you put aside Hadith al-Thaqalain, then things will become very, very clouded, and you'll start thinking, okay, he's going against Yazid, therefore I have to fight him. And that's where the problem lies. Bani Abbas and Bani Umay used to say, Hussein went out of you know, the path, he was killed with the sword of his grandfather. Hold on a minute. This sword of grandfather, what are you talking about? This sword of grandfather is talking about Islam. Is Hussein part of Islam? Because the Prophet said he will not separate from the Quran. What wrong did he do? So there is a lot of ways in which we can come to look at this, but Hadith Thaqalain has a center stage in this discussion. I think understanding Thaqalain is a great way to go forward in our discussion because now, we see that Abba Abdullah and the Quran are going to be together throughout this journey, from the beginning until the end and, and further. So now, if we observe Abba Abdullah's journey, we should be seeing the Quran alongside him in his movement, in his speech, and in his conduct. Um, Ali Asghar, let me ask you a question on this point. When you look at Imam Hussein in Medina, so while he's at home and he's not left yet, is there any verse which, which, which comes to you which describes how he's thinking? Does any verses of Quran come up at the time? which helps us know his approach to issues while he's at home, before he's left? One of the verses which come up a lot um, throughout the journey of Imam al-Hussein before he leaves Medina, 
and even afterwards is the verse that we all recite quite often inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un surah 2 verse 156 <laughs> example when Walid ibn Utbah speaks to Imam al-Hussein and tells him Muawiyah has, has died he says inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un on various parts of his journey where he hears of a death of a companion he says inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un and indeed one of the most heartbreaking moments of Ashura when Ali al-Asghar is killed in the hands of Imam al-Hussein we all recount how he walks backwards and forwards seven times and recites inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un um, here it's interesting to kind of note that while inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un is something we recite at death, at, when some, we hear the death of an individual, we recite this verse. And this is correct, you know, this is one of the usages about Abdullah has for this, ver- for this verse of the Quran. However, when Aliyun al-Asghar dies in his hands and he uses this verse, I think this verse comes to life for us a bit more. Because in the verses of the Quran, Surah 2, verse 155, the verse before, Allah says, Allah says he will test you with fear um, and hunger and loss of lives and loss of livelihood, loss of fruits. Then Allah says, In every single one of these trials, fear, hunger, loss of lives, loss of livelihood or loss of fruits, the patient are the ones who are victorious. They give good news to the patients. The one who recites, inna lillah wa inna ilihi raji'un. You know, the commentators say that verse 212155, all of those trials came upon Abu Abdullah al-Husayn. Meaning him and his family were tested with all four at the same time. Fear, hunger, thirst, loss of, you know, livelihood and loss of lives. So they were tested with all four at the same time. And so oh, no. I was a very... A unique day where all these four trials came upon them. But Imam al Hussein would always recite this verse, Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'ud. Because this verse actually gives us strength. This verse should be something that gives us strength at a time of trial. Such that in the tafsir, when you read about the tafsir of this verse, um, Rasulullah actually has a tradition where he says there's four things which if a mu'min says he will be one of those people who are entering Jannah. If his shahada is la ilaha illallah. When a blessing comes to him, he says, Alhamdulillah. When he commits a sin, he says, Astaghfirullah. And when a musibah comes upon him, he says, Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Now, Imam al Hussein gives us a very beautiful expansion on this verse to understand how this verse can help us at a time of trial. At that juncture, when Ali al Asghar was killed in his arms, he walks back and forth and he says, Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Then he says, Ridham biqadaihi. This is beautiful because when you think about the verse, Inna lillah, why should that help me at a time of trial? Normally we only recite it when somebody passes away. But that's a limited usage of the verse. You see, at a time of trial, when you say Inna lillah, what you recognize is that me and everything in this world belongs to Allah. And therefore, if he takes it away from me, it belongs to him in the first place. Therefore, I should not become overly depressed. When Imam al-Hussein loses his six-month-old baby in his arms, he says, Inna lillah. We belong to Allah. Then he says, I'm satisfied with his decree because I belong to him in the first place. He can do what he wishes with my life. If this is his decree, then I'm satisfied with it. And I'm submissive to his command. I stay submissive to his command. Even at a time of difficult trial, I submit and do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to do. Because we are going to be returning to him. And so Imam al-Hussein, you find before he leaves, when he's talking to Walid ibn Utbah, he recites this verse. And multiple times on the journey, he recites this verse, Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un. And he gives us this beautiful expansion on the verse that can make us understand how in our trials, we should recite this verse, just like Abi Abdullah did. Just in the same way, it gave him strength. Such that when Ali al-Asghar was killed in his arms, he'd look up to the sky according to Nafis al-Mahmum. And he would say, my only comfort at this time is to know that Allah is watching. That's so beautiful. Normally... We don't say this. We know we think Allah is watching. Ya Allah, why did you pick me? 
but Imam al-Hussein for reciting inna lillah inna wa inna ilayhi raji'un, it gave him strength. And so we could learn this from Abu Abdullah al-Hussein in our trials as well. This is a very beautiful point because now we are seeing the same verse being used by Abu Abdullah in different circumstances. Yes. And each time he uses it, we see a different dimension of it. So you mentioned at the time of Hazrat Ali Asghar, going backwards, we see the same verse being used in Medina, where we mentioned. Sheikh, when this verse was mentioned at that time, what did we see here, right at the beginning, which we then see the development of later on in the journey, when it was said in Medina? We have to recognize an important point at the outset, and that is the reason why Sayyid al-Shuhada would often recite these verses of the Qur'an are number of fold, but I will mention just two to start off with. First of all, there is an accusation that his movement, his mission, his revolution is illegal. There was an accusation that it has no legitimacy. And Imam السلام, is continuously reciting these verses throughout his journey, whether it be in Medina or Mecca, of Mecca, towards the land of Karbala, whether it's in staying Karbala, eve of Ashura, day of Ashura, throughout his uh, uh, time with uh, the companions, later on with his family members when he was alone, even after his martyrdom where his holy head was being carried in Sham, narration Sunni and Shia say that there were recitations from Surah Al-Kahf, this is when the head of Abba Abdullah spoke. Now, Number one is to say, my mission is the mission of the Qur'an. My objective is the objective of the Qur'an. It's on par. It's absolutely 100% supported by the Holy Qur'an. That's number one. Number two, and this is an interesting point that perhaps some of us may need to pick up, and it's very relevant to our lives today. And that is, just as much as the Qur'an lives with us, is the you know, instrument for our self-change, is the guide and the illumination for our lives, Abba Abdullah's mission is also the same. So this is why Eve of Ashura, Ziyarat al-Hussein. Day of Eid al-Fitr, Ziyarat al-Hussein. Laylatul Qadr, Ziyarat al-Hussein. Night of Friday, Eve of Friday, Ziyarat al-Hussein. The Ahl al-Bayt would say, hold on. If you want your lives to continuously stagnate, then ignore Ahl al-Bayt and ignore Aba Abdullah. But if you want change, if you want positivity towards righteousness, then remember Aba Abdullah. So Imam al-Hussein is reciting the Quran to say, you know what, me and the Quran, because we're the Ahl al-Bayt, we're together. But, but I will recite it because my revolution is something that human beings will require to remember and to uphold and to learn from all the time. Now, this Ayatul Istirja that uh, Brother Ali Aslam very nicely mentioned is called Ayatul Istirja Inna Lillahu is known as one of the greatest ayat verses of Tawheed. Aba Abdullah's mission was about Tawheed. Everything about Karbala was about Tawheed. Ghadir was about Tawheed. Tenth of Muharram was about monotheism. Yes? In which way? In the idea that there was a mission, a very corrupted, fabricated, deceitful objective to eliminate and eradicate the religion of Islam. So, when Hussein ibn Ali comes forward, recites Inna Lillah in these different verses. Amir al-Mu'minin, peace and blessings be upon him, beautifully, he says, you know, do you want to understand what Inna Lillah is? Inna Lillah iqrarun ala anfusina bil mulk. He says, when I say Inna Lillah, I, I, I belong to Allah, I am testifying that I do not own anything, Allah owns everything. Mulk, I'm owned, I'm a slave. And then he says, When I say, Verily, I'm returning to him. I am testifying that that's it. My life, whatever it is, I will eventually perish. I don't live here forever. And this is, has a very important point regarding the situation of the Muslims at that time. The situation was such that people were plagued with materialism. People were plagued with the love of this world. They were enticed by the people uh, such as Muawiyah, Ubaidullah bin Ziyad, purchased, you know, Muslim ibn Aqil. The reason why he lost Kufa was because Ubaidullah would go to the tribes and give them money and would frighten them. So the awakening the conscious of the people, recognizing that this life is what? That's mortal. It is short term to make them understand that we will all perish from, and we are nothing. We don't own anything. Whatever they give you, this is, Nonsense, you're gonna lose it, right? Overnight, you might lose it. Was one of the objectives of Abdullah, and incidentally, Imam Zain al Abidin continued with his dua, Sahifa Sajjadiyah, to awaken people from the disease of the love of this world and the darkness of the heart that they were going through.
Wow. I can't allow you to mention Sezadiyah and not turn to Agha Aliyasta, who has uh, lectured extensively on this topic. Agha, when you just heard that final point, did anything come to mind to you? Uh, about Sahibat Sajjadiyah. Yeah, and it's usage here to understand the Tawheed of this movement. Well, as we often mention, you know, Imam Sajjad was faced with a very difficult task. Um, a community who had just killed his father, you know, just butchered his family in front of him. Um, a community who, you know, those who were silent were just lackadaisically going about life, you know, apathetic, not caring, confused. And people who, on the whole, were disconnected from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the same way, Rasulullah's people, you know, when he came into those people of Jahiliyyah, they were all disconnected from Allah. And often scholars say the first thing that Rasulullah did was to turn them inwards and connect them to Allah, which gives them strength for their movement, which gives them strength to follow the religion of Islam. Imam al-Sajjad was faced with this difficult task of facing these people at a time which was very difficult. You know, after Karbala, we see so many other tragedies happen. You know, uh, Yazid ransacking uh, Mecca, for example. The rape of so many women in the holy city of Mecca. Um, so, you know, we see so many tragedies happen. And Imam al-Sajjad cannot openly just come out and talk. You know, his family have just been dragged, you know, with chains. And he's given some sermons, but he can't just openly come out and keep giving sermons. And so, in a subtle manner, he wants to guide everyone back to Allah. And he does it through these beautiful du'as of Sahifat al-Sajjadiyah. And these du'as, you know, I invite anyone just to recite them. You know, just recite them. As in, they don't even take a lot of tafsir. You know, just to get a simple meaning from them, it's very easy. Um, and as because they be just below the kalam of Allah, sometimes they're a tiny bit easier to understand. And so, you'll find with the du'as of Imam al-Sajjad, it's all about Allah. You know, he's talking about, he's always talking to Allah in every situation. You know, he gives the situations of, for example, the morning and the evening. Situations of worry. Situations when you're sick. Uh, a dua against shaitan. A dua for well-being. A dua for hardship. A dua for your parents. A dua for your neighbors. A dua for your children. So he speaks about all these matters through connecting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Teaching the community that everything you do should be for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your love for your family members, your respect for your neighbors, uh, your, your wishing for well-being. When you're in a time of worry, when you wake up in the morning, connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it's a beautiful book of du'a. It's absolutely beautiful. And all it does is connect you back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every du'a has so many beautiful subtle points that just connect you back to Allah in the most difficult and the most happy times in your life. You'll just connect back to Allah, you'll see that connection and you'll see how you can develop this personal relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at any given time. But the Imam, very beautifully as well, he's, he puts in the importance of the Ahlul Bayt. If you read Sahifat al-Sajjadiyah, one thing you'll find is there's many different types of salawat. Sometimes you'll just give a simple salawat, Oh Allah, bless Muhammad and his family and give me this. Other times you'll say, Oh Allah, bless Muhammad and his family and allow me to obey them as you have commanded. Other times you'll do a very long salawat, Oh Allah, send blessings on Muhammad and his family. In every time, in every time, in every place and in every situation. Showing the importance and the centrality of the family of Rasulullah. As we mentioned at the start, Hadith Thaqalain. Imam al-Sajjad makes sure he puts these in these du'as so that he makes people realize that in your connection to Allah, there is a sirat al-mustaqim. There is a path. There is a family that directs you towards Allah, that leads you towards Allah. And it is the central family. And so Sahifat al-Sajjadi is a beautiful book. And it's one of those things, you know, um, a lot of us, when we come back from work, we, def we, we find it very difficult to read a book because we're tired, we're lazy. You know, we're like, tired, I had a long day at work, you know. Sahifat al-Sajjadi is a bit easier. You know, you could play it on YouTube now, so I just get the translations coming up. And reciting du'a isn't as difficult as reading a book. Because in reading a book, you really got to concentrate on what the scholar is saying, follow it along. With du'a, I find you can recite it and just follow along with the words while listening. And you'll learn, learn and gain so much just from reciting or listening to those du'as of Imam al-Sajjad, And so it really was a masterstroke from Imam al-Sajjad to leave back behind those du'as for a community that were you know, completely dissociating from Allah, that Allah wasn't really part of their lives. They were confused, apathetic, not bothered. He really, with a beautiful, um, in a beautiful manner, tried to guide them back towards Allah through the du'as of Sahifat al-Sajjadiyah. 
it's actually great to understand the mindset of the Imam after Karbala and the way he thinks. And it's actually useful to use to look back at the mindset of Abu Abdullah as well, because he's also thinking along uh, these highly divine lines about serving Allah in every step. Bearing that in mind, dear Sheikh, when Imam al-Hussein is leaving his home, finally, after all of the political pressure upon him, after which he simply cannot stay, how does he use Quran in a way that we have, we can tap into the way he is thinking? There's a certain verse he mentions when he leaves his home, which really hits home from, uh, from Surah Al-Qasas. Ashura and the 10th of Muharram is not uh, also uh, free from misconceptions and a number of accusations that have been presented against the Imam, what he said and what he recited or what he did or did not do. And one of those controversies is what he recited as he left the holy city of Medina. It was Sunday, the 28th of Rajab, 60 years after Hijrah. And the grandson of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be upon them, with his family members and a large number of his companions, he was setting out to leave towards Mecca when uh, somebody approached him and, you know, he, he heard Imam Ali Salam reciting this particular verse, as you said, from Surah Al-Qasas, chapter 28, verse number 21. <laughs> بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم فخرج منها خائفا يترقب قال رب نجني من القوم Translated as, so he went forth uh, looking fearfully around himself and prayed, uh, Oh Allah, oh my sustainer, save me from the evil doing folk. So at this juncture, when we look at this verse, one of the accusations that being presented is, look, Hussein ibn Ali saying, minha He was scared. Khaif means, you know, somebody who's petrified, has khawf, right? Somebody says, in Arabic, it means I'm scared. So Hussein leaves Medina, that's the accusation, reciting this verse, saying that I am scared, looking around him, worried about what's going to happen to him. In fact, okay. sorry to interrupt, Sheikh, they used Prophet Yusuf's original utterance of this verse to make this argument. That because he's the one who initially said this verse, look about Abdullah, he was scared like that. It was actually Prophet Musa, alayhi salam. Musa, alayhi salam. Musa yeah. when he left towards Median uh, yeah. from Egypt, he recited this particular verse. Now, very briefly, this requires a whole podcast or se session by itself, but khawf, when it comes to Allah, when it comes to, you know, when you look at the narrations of the Ahlul Bayt, and when you see that they express, you know, uh, in, in, in Dua Abu Hamza Thamali of the fourth holy Imam, uses expressions of khawf many times. In Dua Arafah, likewise, you know. Similarly, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, prophets used to say, Ya Allah, we're scared. For example, when Allah says to Musa and, and, and Harun, go towards Fir'aun, قَالَ رَبَّنَا إِنَّنَا نَخَافِ Ya Allah, we're scared. Right? So immediately those who haven't understood the ethos of prophets, haven't understood the status of those individuals chosen by Allah, say, oh, they're human beings, they get scared, they're scared for their lives. No, that's, you've missed the point. They're not individuals who are scared for their lives. They're scared for the mission of Allah. They're scared that they die and they haven't fulfilled their objective. When Musa says, Ya Allah, I, we are scared. We are scared that Fir'aun will kill us before we spread the light of Tawheed. Aba Abdullah al-Hussein highlights that he wasn't scared for his life at all. And I'll tell you the reason, proof to dispel this misconception once and for all, two proofs. Immediately after he recited this, he said to the person who was listening there, who said to him, why don't you take a mountainous way? You know, don't go through the normal method, the normal route, the road that takes you from Mecca, from Medina to Mecca. Takes a region, uh, uh, some path that nobody will find you. Because that's how he understood it also from the verse. Imam responds to him and says to him, La Allah. No, you're mistaken. I'm not going to go this path. I'm going to go the normal method. That shows Imam Ali Salam was not in any way uh, afraid of being killed or you know losing his life. 
his objective was to deliver the message. His objective was to establish a just government. His objective is to fulfill the divine responsibility. So it wasn't to escape. And by the way, if it was to escape, he was, he was able to, after Mecca, go and hide somewhere. He could have had the easiest of lives to save his life, you know, easiest. And one of the other proof is when on his way towards Karbala, when he uh, heard the news of the martyrdom of Muslim ibn Aqil, and before that, Farazdaq, the famous poem, came to him and said to him, the people's hearts are with you, but their swords against you, he carried on. Then he was told, Muslim ibn Aqil is being killed. What did he do? Did he turn back? Hold on a minute. But I thought he went there because he was somehow uh, believing that Muslim ibn Aqil would establish the government and everything would be fine for him. Normally, naturally, if you're thinking that, you'll turn back. He didn't turn back. He continued. This was a man on a mission, not afraid to lose his life whatsoever. Why did he recite this verse? Uh, which was recited by Musa, because, uh, you know, another podcast, inshallah, or some discussion, the similarities between Musa, salam's movement and the movement of Aba Abdullah Hussein, salam, are mm. so many, because the most quoted story in the Quran is Musa, salam. He's mentioned 136 times in the Holy Quran. Bani Israel have been referred to 900 verses in the Holy Quran. And the incredible similarity with the Ummah of Rasulullah Muhammad وسلم, is striking. And you look at it and you say, yes, there's Fir'aun, you see there's oppression, there's within the Muslim community treachery. You know, Samari, within the tribe of Bani Israel, was a believer. Soon as Musa leaves, he turns against Harun, isn't it? He builds this golden calf and so on. Prof, uh, Imam Hussein is saying, look, my mission is the mission of prophets. As-salamu alayka, ya waritha Musa kaleem Allah. And amongst the many other prophets that are mentioned in Ziyarat Warith, he's the inheritor of the prophets. He's fulfilling their mission. He recites verses that are recited by prophets such as Musa because of the similarity and because Musa was standing against oppression and injustice, awakening people up from their darkness, right? And he recites this as he sets off towards the, uh, the, the path of God. And incidentally, the final part of the verse, which is interesting, is, Ya Allah, there are people who are oppressors. I want to be you know, freed. But this freedom is not necessarily a physical freedom. This, this freedom means I want to be able to establish haq and adala and justice so that zulm does not anymore be uh, there. Interestingly, the second part of the verse, he, enter, he says as he enters Mecca. when he set towards Median. So when he left, he went towards Median. And he says, perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through this will guide me to the straight path or the best path. And again, Imam al-Hussein recites this verse in the Sunnah of Prophet Musa salam, as per the Quran when he enters Mecca. And of course, we know in Mecca, um, uh, the Dalameen, the people, still came against him, you know, such that he had to cut his head short and leave early on the day of Tarweeh. Um, but when Imam al-Hussein, I think it, it again shows what the Shaykh was saying, that Imam al-Hussein was the warith, he was the inheritor of the mission of the prophets. And the people who have a misconception of when Imam al-Hussein recites this verse, how it might show him in a negative light, is because they've misunderstood the prophets themselves as well. And it shows how in the Shi'i school of thought, we understand how the Imams were those who carried on the mission of the prophets. They were the inheritor of the mission of the prophets. And shows how pure our conception is of the prophets and the Imams as a result of that. When Imam al-Hussein is entering Mecca, just how Prophet Musa says, perhaps this is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide me towards the straight path. Again, it shows how Imam al-Hussein's mission is a mission of Tawheed. How he's searching for the best way to reform his community. You know, just to expand kind of on what Shaykh al-Sheikh said, um, you know, if Imam al-Hussein wanted it easy, he could have followed what Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyah said to him. Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyah said to him, oh, you know, oh my brother, you have many lovers in Yemen. 
Go towards Yemen. Don't go towards Mecca. Don't go towards Kufa. But Imam al-Hussein didn't listen to him. Why? Because he was a man on a mission to reform the community. Some scholars actually say he went to Mecca. I remember listening, reading this in an article by Sayyid Muhammad Rizvi. He said he went towards Mecca because Mecca was a place of announcement. You know, back in the day, there wasn't, you know, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Facebook. You couldn't just, you know, send a tweet and everyone reads it. Rather, uh, Mecca was a place where everyone would come to. And people used to go in the Kaaba or around the Kaaba used to make announcements. You could really gather, gather a lot of people there. And so the scholars mentioned that Imam al-Hussein perhaps went to Mecca. Why? So that he could announce his mission to so many people. He could guide the people and say, look, you're giving into the wrong Khalifa. You're giving into the wrong leader. Am I not the grandson of Rasulullah? You know, later on in Mecca, just before he leaves, we see the beautiful sermon of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas on top of the Kaaba. But Mecca was a position where Imam al-Hussein could guide the people. And so just as he enters Mecca, he, says, he recites this verse. Perhaps through this city, Allah will guide me to the straight path, the best path on this path of reformation. As Imam al-Hussein says, I wish to uh, I wish to reform the ummah of my grandfather. And he saw Mecca as this place where, especially because the Hajj season was coming and people were gathering into Mecca, he could use this as a means to guide people back towards Sawa al-Sabil, the right path, Sirat al-Mustaqeem, guide them back towards the correct leadership. And so just how Musa alayhi salam when he enters Madian, and Madian gives him many benefits. You know, there is where he goes under the guardianship of Shu'aib and marries his daughter. Shu'aib gives him, for example, a staff. Um, you know, Musa gains a lot of benefits from, from Madian before he can complete his mission against Fir'aun. Imam al-Hussein, looking at himself as the warith of Musa alayhi salam and wanting to complete a mission of reformation in the same way Musa wanted to reform his community against Fir'aun. Imam al-Hussein wants to reform his community against the Fir'aun of his time. And Mecca was a, was a, a destination where he, inshallah, could do this. And hence he recites this verse, again, showing how his mission is a mission of tawheed and guiding people, reforming people back to the right path. I sent them. So whilst here he is in Mecca, speaking to the people, as you mentioned, with this message of, of Tawheed, but again, he must leave. So now he leaves Mecca on the road, which ultimately ends up in, in Karbala. But again, Quran stays with him. And so Shaykhna, while he's traveling on this journey, closer and closer towards Karbala, towards Ashura, how do we see Quran staying close to the words and the mission of Abu Abdullah? Absolutely. I think it's important for everybody watching or listening to recognize that to be able to cover every single verse that Imam al-Hussein went through would require hours and hours. So we are just you're having a look only about a few, perhaps, that you know within the time limitation that uh, Imam al-Hussein would recite. And one of them, for me, was very interesting and characteristic of the whole mission of Imam al-Hussein and somehow summarized it. And that is when he went to, to a place called Qasr Bani Muqatil, not far from Karbala. You know, he reached Karbala on the 2nd of Muharram, year 61 after Hijrah. This is, you know, not that distance from Karbala, maybe about 20, 30, 40 kilometers or even a bit more. And what happened was there was a man there by the name of Ubaidullah ibn al-Hurr al-Ju'fi. Ubaidullah ibn al-Hurr al-Ju'fi is a name that many people haven't heard of. But he, somehow his story summarizes the whole purpose of Karbala and what happened in a particular way. Ubaidullah was one of the people who associated himself with the third Khalifa Uthman. Then after the death of Uthman, he fought with Muawiyah against Imam Ali salam in the Battle of Safin. And then just decided to seclude himself, perhaps live a life of a recluse, somebody who just didn't want anything to do with anyone. And he happened to be there in this area called Qasr Bani Muqatil. And interestingly, Imam Hussein salam, when his caravan passes, he stops. He sends a messenger towards the tent of Ubaidullah ibn al-Hurr al-Ju'fi. Remember, Imam Hussein salam, is carrying on the message of Rasulullah, which is the message of the Quran, which is Rahmatan lil'alameen. And Imam wants as many people as possible to be guided and also to be given an opportunity. You know, it's not about, oh, my exclusive club and I just want to go and I will be martyred. I'm not, I don't want you with me. As many people to join this caravan of freedom and dignity and eternal bliss. Look at Hur uh, uh, ibn Yazid al-Riyahi 
who chose the right path and for so long until today, until the day of Qiyamah, he is visited and praised. So Imam Ali salam, out of his compassion is telling Abaydullah ibn al come. So he sent him a messenger. And the messenger goes to him, explains, look, this is about Abdullah. says, you know, I've come to avoid him. I, I'm not interested. I don't want to meet him. You know, go back. So goes back. Now put yourself, let's put ourselves in the position of Imam Hussein alayhi salam. We're trying to invite someone towards the religion, trying to invite someone towards salvation. We, and I, and we're kind of, you know, just not normal people. We're like really prestigious individuals in the sense in the eyes of Allah, grandson of the Prophet. I invite someone by sending a messenger and that messenger comes back saying he's not interested. What do we do? See, Amir al-Mu'mineen talked about the messenger in a way that's beautiful. He says, Tabibun dawarun You know, today when we need a, med a doctor, we go to a doctor. Imam says, the Prophet of Islam was the physician of the soul who would come to people who are sick. It is not about them going to the Prophet only. He would look out for those who need help, who are sick, right? So Imam al-Hussein goes to Abaydullah ibn al-Hur, enters. And you know, Abaydullah, surprised. He's about Abdullah, Imam al-Hussein coming inside this tent, welcomes him. Welcome, you have not Rasulullah, you're very welcome. Incidentally, just uh, in between brackets, narrations have said that uh, Abaydullah looks at the beard of Imam al-Hussein and it's black. Says to him, oh, what's happened? You know, it seems that you have dyed your hair. Your, you know, your beard. And Imam Hussein says the, the, the problems and the calamities are much, you know. Mm -hmm. So the Ahl Bayt used to die, you know, just out of, just throw in that thing in the just middle a little, of the a little, a little <laughs> snippet for the viewer. Yeah, just, just for interest, you know, people think, oh, just always talking about these things. But interesting, they used to use dyes. This is not an advert for a dye company. It's just, uh, you know, this is just a, a mention that's found in there. So what happened was Imam Hussein then has a conversation with him as a conversation regarding look, what I'm here for, what I'm about to establish. Do you want to join? Do you want to? And Abaydullah uh, says, what am I getting if I join you? He says, Jannah. What wow. else do you want? I mean, that's the best. Subhanallah, someone today who is, speaks the truth, who is manifesting the truth, who is empowered the Quran, comes and tells me and says, do something, I promise you, Jannah. Why would anyone? But look at, look at how much intoxication there was in the mindset of people. Look how much the love of this world there was to the extent, this reminds me uh, of, of Samar ibn Jundub, this individual, supposed Sahabi of the Prophet. He had a tree in the house of someone who was uh, Ansari and Rasulullah, you know, had a complaint that he was visiting this tree every time and there was people, Nama Haram. And so Rasulullah says, give me this tree and I'll reward you. He says, what's your reward? He says, I'll give you this. He says, no. He says, give me the tree and I'll give you Jannah. Samara said, no. Not interested. I want my tree. SubhanAllah, Rasulullah is telling you, I give you Jannah. Anyway, so, and, and there are millions of human beings today who respect Samara and think he's a companion. But anyway, that discussion we'll have on the day of Qiyamah. So the point is here that this is, this is a very interesting discussion that takes place between Samara ibn Jundub and, uh, sorry, between Abaydullah ibn al-Hurraj and Imam Hussein until eventually Abaydullah says, you know what, I'm not interested. I have my family. I have my wealth. And I'm afraid that Abaydullah ibn Ziyad will do something to them. But, I have an offer for you. Here's my horse. He's quite fast. He's quite useful. And that's my gift for you. And you know, you can take him. And so Imam Hussein start, makes a powerful stance. You know, one of the verses, obviously, he recites a particular verse. This is uh, in uh, chapter 18, verse number 51. He says, you, uh, the, the, uh, I would not take as helpers those who lead people astray. After listening to Abedullah, he says, look, you, I don't need you if you're going to have this attitude of I'm not interested, weak-hearted, you know, no loyalty, no determination, no commitment in this particular path. And then Imam says his famous line. He says to him, uh, If you don't want to sacrifice your life, I don't need your soul, uh, your uh, horse, neither do I need you. I'm going to give you uh, words of advice, you know, 
do not hear my cries and do mm. not hear my voice. Yes? Because wallah, anyone who hears our cries for help and does not support us, Allah will humiliate them in the pits of Jahannam. And you know this Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, what he did? Many of us say the first person to visit the grave of Imam al-Hussein was who? Was the famous companion of the Holy Prophet Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari. You say, you know, on the, uh, close to the Arba'een he came. This is factually incorrect in the sense of the most righteous, the first righteous individual who visited the grave of Imam al-Hussein was uh, Jabir ibn Abdullah. But the first human being after Imam al-Sajjad who buried Imam al-Hussein to visit the grave was Ubaidullah ibn al-Hurr al-Ja'fi, this man. He came, he started weeping, you know, crocodile tears. Oh, I should have supported you. I should have done this and the other. But guess what he did? Many years later, he fought with Mus'ab ibn Umair, uh, Mus'ab ibn Zubair, rather, against Mukhtar al-Thaqafi. So he was not an uh, individual who's sincere, because otherwise you'll know Mukhtar al-Thaqafi's path was avenging the blood of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein, and so on. But anyway, because his, guy, his heart became too dark and he became uh, actually misguided. But the point of this, uh, ex, uh, this story and this really important uh, verse that was cited by Imam Hussain was this, that there were people given opportunities and they could see Jannah and Jahannam. Hur chose Jannah. Ubaidullah ibn al-Hur al-Ja'fi chose Jahannam. Many times in our lives we're given that opportunity. Many times we're in a crossroads and we really have to be careful which decision to make and a slip up could lead us further and further away and astray. Yesterday, and I know I've taken too long, just to link it to contemporary times, I was speaking to a, a sister. She's 18 years of age. She, used to, she told me, you know what? Because her, her parents bought her and they were sitting there and they said, you know, she's on Instagram. She has relations with boys and so on. And she said to me, don't worry. I know I'm very strong. I, I'll be okay. I, I, I'll be uh, just talking to him. There'll be nothing what happens between us. You know, everything will be fine said to her, subhanallah, you know, only the ma'asub can say this, but even the ma'asubin are telling us, be very careful. But here's the thing, this could be a slippery road. The moment you take this decision, you look back and, you know, you're somewhere else and you don't know how you ended up where you've ended up. Similarly, with these examples of the time Imam Hussein, salam, unfortunately, they were not awake to make the correct decision and he had we can make the right decision in our lives. This is so valuable for us in our decisions, like you mentioned, like to incorporate that in the way we choose things. This, you know, this idea that I am standing between heaven and hell, like so often we are in that situation in, in many times. And here comes Abba Abdullah phrasing it like this for us. That the decision you're about to make is literally between heaven and hell. And we see the same sentiment carrying all the way until the ninth of Muharram. He's always giving options to his enemies and to his friends, saying to them, you don't have to fight with me. You can leave. That, that's the, the thing about if you don't hear my call, then it is not wajib upon you. He continues this right until the end. Also giving opportunities to the enemies that even until the last moment, you can repent. You have not committed that sin yet. So Agha Ali Asghar, even until the 9th of Muharram, until even the 10th of Muharram, until the last moments, Abu Abdullah is giving choice and opportunity to the others. Can we see Quran being used in this approach as well? Indeed we can. As in, um, what I love about the discussion we just had is um, how Imam al-Hussein made it really black and white. Mm. I think sometimes this has become blurred in this day and age, um, you know, especially with our movements of unity at times. So while, of course, we all respect unity, um, sometimes we like to blur the margins a bit. And do we say there's gray areas? Imam al-Hussein was making it clear. Black and white, no gray. If you're not sure, you're not with me. If you don't have yaqeen, you don't need to come with me. You know, he made it very clear to um, Ibn al-Hur, I don't need you if you're not, on, if you're not, you know, committed, I don't need you. Now, you know, this is a very strong line. You know, I think uh, this verse, uh, This is actually, first, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the context in the actual Quran is when Allah says to the disbelievers, you know, do you take the shayateen in the verse before? Uh, do you take the shayateen? So Allah says, he, Allah says that everyone, all the angels uh, bowed down before Adam except Iblis. He was a jinn, so he went against the commands of his Lord. Do you take him and his friends as awliya, as guardians, except for me? 
other than me? Then Allah says, they did not witness the creation of the heavens and the earth. They did not even see the creation of themselves. Then Allah says, I would never take somebody who is going to misguide as a helper or a friend. Interestingly, in Tafsir Nur al-Thaqalain, it says that Amir al-Mu'mineen was once offered, he says, why don't you take Muawiyah as part of your, as your governors? He says, I do not take people who um, you would, would uh, misguide as a helper. So Imam al Hussein was making it black and white. We don't need people who are committed. Then on the 10th of Muharram, we see whenever a companion was martyred, he would recite a verse. This verse is from Surah Al-Ahzab. When, um, you know, every 10th of Muharram, every Ashura, many of us do the A'mal, we recite Turaq As-Salah, and in it we recite Surah Al-Ahzab and Surah Munafiqoon. In Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah 33, verse 23, whenever a companion was martyred, you know, when Qays uh, ibn Musahir Sayyidawi was martyred, Muslim ibn Awsaja, Habib ibn Mazahir, in Al-Luhuf it says, Imam Al-Husayn will recite this verse, Surah 33, verse 23, Min al-Mu'mineena rijalan sadaqu ma'ahad Allah alayhi. From among the believers, there are those who have fulfilled the oath that Allah had put upon them. Now, this oath we can take in many different ways, but it starts with the oath Allah gave to Bani Adam. You know, from Min Dhuhurihim, Dhurriyatahum, Wa Ashhaduhum, Ala Anfusihim, Alastubarabikum. Not only this, but we find the oath in, in Surah Yasin, Allah says, Alam Akahad Ilaykum Ya Bani Adam, Allah Taqabudu Shaytan, that you will not serve the Shaytan. And the day of Ghadir, which we mentioned at the start, is known as Yawm al-Ahad, the day of our covenant with the Ahlul Bayt. There are believers who went out to the battlefield and fought until they were martyred. They, pay, they stayed true to their oath until the very last moment. There are many who turned away, but Imam Hussein would recite this verse to say that there are believers who stayed on the right path till the very end, until they were martyred in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we pray that we are among these people because times are very hard to hold on to our faith is very hard. But we want to be among those believers who are on the right path until the very end, even if that means we are killed in the way of the Allah and the Ahlul Bayt And here we are in the last moments of Ashura, as you mentioned. And every time about Abdullah, first, every time he receives a wound, he does shukr of Allah. But every time he sees a companion leave, he's thinking of Allah, speaking to him. And Quran is so part of his conversation with Allah. Shaykh and I have got to give you last word on this. When you look at those final moments of Ashura, Abu Abdullah, he keeps speaking to Allah throughout the entire day, including Quran. What can we understand about this man based on the way he uses Quran in those final moments? When we look at the uh, words of the Ahlul Bayt, we recognize that they did not see Salah, Qur'an, Dhikr, Ibadah as chores, but the most sweetest and the most pleasurable of tasks or actions, rather, that they would enjoy because they saw the Creator as the only beloved, as the source of comfort. And, you know, when Imam Al-Husayn recites the Qur'an, when he speaks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can feel that it is speaking to someone who's close. You know, when he held his slaughtered six-month-old baby, he famously said, The calamity is so, so, so painful. But what gives me the strength to deal with it, Aba Abdullah says, is that God is watching. He, you know, when he says, you know, he, he's talking to whom? He's talking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's saying, you know, you are watching and I know that you are aware of the extent of the crimes that, uh, you know, have been committed here. Similarly, when the arrow pierces through his blessed heart, when they throw a rock on his head and so on, he has these sentiments which expresses his devotion to Rabbil Alameen and his willingness to do, to give and to sacrifice and to do absolutely everything. I think when we look at the day of Ashura, the conduct of the companions, because let's not forget, the eve of Ashura was an eve of Quran and Salah. They could hear the humming, it's like the humming of the birds, so to speak, from the campsite of Abu Abdullah Hussein. Guess what they were hearing from the campsite of Yazid, you know, a, leg uh, a legitimate or uh, forbidden type of music. And so 
the reason why Imam al Hussein delayed the battle to the day of the uh, 10th of Muharram, he said specifically, go and request that we do not start the battle today because Allah knows how much I love salah and recitation of the Quran. You know, and he recited chapter 3, verse 178 to 179. You know, and let not those who disbelieve think that our granting them respite is better for their souls. We grant them respite only so that they may add to their sins and they shall have a disgraceful chastisement. On no account will Allah leave the believer in the condition which you are in until he separates evil from the good. Imam al-Husayn was saying, you think that even you have superior number, you're 30,000, and we are about 100, not 72. Very big mistake when everyone keeps saying 72, 72. One historical uh, uh, you know, report from Tabari and everyone stuck to it. The number is more likely about 100, 110. But anyway, that's a separate discussion. When we are about that many, you think that you have numerical supremacy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, yes, that وَلَا وَلَا You are superior as long as you are believers. Imam Abu Abdullah and the companions had a smile on their face. This is a smile because they spent the night reciting the Quran. They spent the night in ibadah. On the day of Ashura, they were fully committed. They were fully charged. You know, and it's reflective on their uh, uh, recitation of the lines of poetry, which is very common when they go to fight. You know, uh, we are only uh, told of the lines of poetry that the companions of Imam Hussein and his family and himself would recite, and not of the army of Yazid, because they were just there, you know, sometimes not really clear in their minds and just fighting because they're scared or they're fighting because they've been promised money and so on and so forth, and somehow indeed misguided. But the mission really. And the final point I'd like to mention is, often in Ashura, often in the commemoration of Imam Hussein during the first 10 uh, nights, there is absolutely a great emphasis on majalis. There's an absolutely great emphasis on mourning and crying and azadari. And that has to continue. And that's key, absolutely key for the remembrance of Abdullah Hussein. But what is also key is that to use the first 10 days and more in Muharram and Safar to reestablish our connection with the Quran. Yes. If Abu Abdullah spent the eve of Ashura reciting the Quran, he's sending a message to you and I. If Abu Abdullah was praying Salah whilst the arrows were being showered on him, yes, he's sending a message to you and I. My mission, my revolution, my my movement is about upholding the Quran, is about upholding the Salah, is about upholding righteousness. How do I measure my proximity to Imam Hussein and his mission when I complete the Aza? is how close am I to Quran? How close am I to Salah? How close am I to the universal principles and values that he came to establish? So let's not disregard and ignore the Quran on these first 10 nights. Let's make it a Quranic commemoration of the Shahada of Abu Abdullah al-Hussein in the best possible way. This is a very beautiful point to end on. So I must thank both of you uh, for joining us. We urge all of our listeners to incorporate Quran in your azai in the way that Sheikh has just mentioned. Thank you, Sheikh Hilli. Thank you, Sheikh uh, Aliyasko. Thank you to Brother Muhammad Ali Saadi for his recitations. And uh, I think we should end on a salat ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa So there we have it. The Quran is so closely linked and associated to Abu Abdullah that from the beginning until the end of this divine journey, he mentions Quran at every opportunity, whether to teach or to educate, or just to allow us to understand his mindset and the way he thinks, the way he decides, which is a great gift for the believers today. 
We have also discussed understanding the Quran, how it was misused against Abu Abdullah, but crucially, and the most lovely concluding points we just heard, every Azadara today, everyone who wants to follow and mourn for Abu Abdullah must have some relationship to the same Quran which Abu Abdullah has a relationship to. We cannot be a mourner for Imam al-Hussein without being a reader of the Holy Quran. And so we conclude and urge all of our listeners to keep up and join us in this journey closer and closer to Ashura with, in one hand, your Quran, inshallah. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, 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 hey,